Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. I am um, so excited today to preach a message to you about the resurrection. How many of you are excited to hear it? Okay, good. All right. Amen. Praise God. Last week, we celebrated Palm Sunday, and we celebrated the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, And today, I want to tell you the story of Easter that goes forward from that time, from Palm Sunday, uh, and and beginning with Passover. I want to take you through the entire story, the saga, the, the most eloquent and beautiful human drama of all time that happened from Passover to the empty tomb. And so I want to take you through that journey this morning. I want to, I want to do it from the per- perspective and through the context of six phrases. There's six specific phrases that we're going to look at, six verses that stand out to us from Passover through the empty tomb. Five of these phrases spoken by the Lord Jesus himself and one phrase spoken by another. I want to lead you through this story this morning. It's going to be a little bit different than I typically do, but that's okay. Uh, I, want to, I, want to, I want to weave a little bit of storytelling into the mix this morning. And I, I, I want to bring you there and transport us all back to Holy Week 2,000 plus years ago. Is that all right with you? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to come before your word. I thank you, Jesus, that the Bible says that the entrance of your word gives light. This morning, Lord, we're thankful to be able once again to to look to your word and to find the answers that we need for life. We trust you this morning to lead us. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. And we commit all of this to you in the mighty name of Jesus. If you believe it, say amen Amen. and amen. So again, moving forward from Palm Sunday, I have to take a drink because all of that, it will never lose its power singing. Made me just a touch parched. How many of you are thankful, before I jump into this, for our awesome worship team and for all the kids that danced? Come on, let's give it up for our kids. Woo! Man, wasn't that awesome? I was about a puddle over here in the front row watching my daughters dance. My goodness. And yeah, we're and Ann Jordan, who works so hard. Where's Ann? Ann, where are you? Where are you? Thank you for working so, there you are, you're hiding behind Joe over there. Thank you for working so hard to choreograph that dance. And my wife, who choreographed the little kids dance, yes, y'all give it up for her. I'll tell you what, there's some talent in this church, my goodness, amen. So I want to begin where we left off last week. We talked about uh, Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and I want to take you basically from from that point. We'll kind of fast forward through the things that happened Monday and Tuesday of that week. You'll remember Palm Sunday was a Sunday. Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem riding on the humility of a donkey. He didn't come in uh, to town on a war horse. He came in on a donkey. 
Monday morning, the scripture tells us that Jesus on that day went back into Jerusalem and the Bible says he cleansed the temple. You remember he turned over the tables of the money changers and he utters the words, the famous phrase, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Tuesday, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes now to the Mount of Olives. And this, if you're familiar with, the, with Mark chapter 11, the great passage where we have the, uh, the, the great lesson on faith, where Jesus says that you speak to the mountain and tell it to be removed and it's cast into the sea, where he curses the fig tree. That's Mark chapter 11. That happens on Tuesday. So that's two days after his triumphal entry. The scripture doesn't really say much about Wednesday. Most people and theologians and people that I've read after just assume that Jesus and the disciples had a day off. They'd been ministering quite a bit, and they needed some downtime before the Passover. And so that brings us now to Thursday. And again, I have six phrases that I want to show you through this Holy Week leading from the Passover, which happened on Thursday, to the empty tomb on Sunday. The story begins, as I said, on Thursday, four days after his triumphal entry. And Jesus is with his disciples just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. Jesus instructs Peter and John to go into the city of Jerusalem and prepare the Passover meal. I want to read to you this passage that comes from Luke chapter 22. It's verses 7 through 16. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and here's what it says. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. He replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? It must have been really interesting to spend life with Jesus because he would just tell you stuff like, hey, walk over there and when you get there, there's going to be a guy carrying some water. Follow him to the house that he goes in and talk to whoever it is in the house that he's going to see. Jesus was just amazing, wasn't he? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said. Shocker. And they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And here is the first of our six statements. Jesus said... I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. I want to take a moment to focus on this phrase, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Can I ask you a question? Why was Jesus very eager? If you think about all the suffering that he was about to endure, why would he use a, use a phrase that to me kind of baffles my mind a little bit? 
Why would he have been eager? I believe there's a simple answer and a more complex one. I'm going to share both of them with you. The simple answer is this. Why was Jesus eager? Because Jesus knew that what was coming, Jesus knew what was coming, and they did not. He knew he was about to go to the cross. He knew he was about to suffer and die. He knew what was coming, and they didn't. This was the last peaceful moment before the storm. As one writer says, it was the deep breath before the plunge. He knew that the next time they would see him alive, he will have conquered death. That's the simple answer. You want know the more complex answer? I believe the more complex answer is this because this was the last Passover. Why was Jesus so eager? Because about 4,000 years prior, actually, it's maybe closer to 3,000, excuse me. I had to get my math right. About 3,000 some odd years prior, Moses, before he left Egypt, instituted this awesome tradition called Passover. Moses instituted for the very first time in Egypt the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And now after all of the centuries have passed and transpired, Jesus is with his disciples and I believe he's eager because this was the last Passover. Not his last Passover, not their last Passover, right? The last Passover. We're not talking about like this is the last time they're going to be together, you know? It's not like it's not a bachelor party, right? Tomorrow Jimmy's getting married. This is the last time we get to hang out together, you know? Like it wasn't this, you know, last hurrah. This was the last time that God the Father would depend on Passover to cover the sins of his people. And that's an intense thought. That's an intense thought. Before this moment, every Passover dinner was eaten in hope and in haste, looking forward. Someday our Messiah is going to come. Someday. We're going to see, we're going to see who this sacrificial lamb is that we keep hearing about. Every Passover was eaten in hope and in haste looking forward. After this last Passover, every Passover, every communion in history has been eaten in faith and in rest looking backward. Why was this so significant? Because it's the last Passover. There's a reason it's called the Last Supper. They break bread. You know the story. Judas is identified as the betrayer, and he flees the scene. And from there, the story continues in Luke chapter 22. Beginning in verse 39, it reads from the New King James, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed to do. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place... He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw away. And he knelt down and he prayed, 
saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. And here's the second statement of our six statements. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Then an angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will but thy will be done. Even in this moment of greatest turmoil and agony of soul, Jesus acknowledged that the Father's mission was more important than his comfort, was more important than his very life. I love this because in this moment, perhaps more than any other moment, Jesus had the chance to walk away. He had the chance to quit. But he didn't. The Bible says, we just read it, that his, that his sweat became so intense and profuse that blood actually started to seep through his skin and come out. The, the immensity of the pressure, the immensity of the weight of the sin of humanity from Adam to you and me. All the sin that had happened from the Garden of Eden until then and all the sin that would happen from that moment until his glorious return someday. All of humanity's sin from the beginning to the end of history in that moment began to descend upon Jesus. And the weight of that sin caused such agony that he sweat great drops of blood. Medically speaking, I did a little bit of research for all the audience nerds. Y'all with me, nerds? All right, here we go. I'm a nerd. Medically speaking, this sweating of blood is known as hematohydrosis. Hematohydrosis, which is a rare condition in which a human being actually sweats blood. It's brought on by moments of intense and unbearable stress. And you know who wrote about it? Leonardo da Vinci was one of the first people to actually write about it when he said he described and saw a soldier, a Roman soldier, who was sweating blood before going into the battle. I want you to understand the weight of what Jesus carried to the cross. I want you to understand that it was no light thing. Sometimes we get a little callous in our thinking because we're so used to, as Christians, going to Easter service and we're so used to hearing, you know, about the Passover and Palm Sunday and, and hiding Easter eggs and eating chocolates and my kids got a chocolate cross this morning when they got out of bed in their Easter baskets and, and for some reason sometimes we get so pacified that we think Easter is about baskets and eggs and chocolate. But I want us to never forget the immensity of the weight that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, carried to the cross for us. He didn't give up when he had the chance. 
in the moments following this intensity of prayer, y'all still with me in the story? In the moments following this intensity of prayer, a band of men led by Judas Iscariot come to find Jesus in the garden. We, we left Judas at the Passover feast a few hours ago, and he has since fled the scene, and now he came back with a band of merry men. The scripture says in John 18 that Judas came with a detachment of troops. I did some research and found out that a detachment, again, for my nerds in the room, a detachment of men was about one-tenth of a Roman legion, or in other words, 600 men armed to the teeth to arrest one guy. I just have to imagine what it must have been like to walk with Jesus. That in the moment of of their necessity to capture him, they felt it best to take 600 people with them. Y'all know where Jesus is? Oh yeah, we saw him go up to the Mount of Olives. He likes to pray up there. The Bible said there it was his, accust- it was his custom. So yeah, we, we know Jesus is hiding up in the olive groves up there talking to the Lord. And I think Peter and John went with him. So that makes three. Let's bring 600. We're gonna need it. And boy, did they ever need it. You read from the book of Luke, you find out Peter got ornery and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus, you know what Jesus did? Peter, put that away. Put that pea shooter down. They arrested him, and he didn't resist. From this moment in the garden, it's getting late on Thursday night. They're, in, they're already into the midnight hour. The men, the 600 armed soldiers, which by the way, let me say this before I keep going, just to show you the kind of power that Jesus possessed so that you don't think that they strong-armed him into the cross. He gave his life down. He laid his life down. He willingly gave of himself. Nobody took him captive. If you read in the book of John, they come to him in this garden scene and they say, we're looking for Jesus Christ. And he says, I am he. And they all fall out under the power. All 600 of them fall to the ground when he says, I am. So Jesus, unresistant, goes with them to the home of the chief priest where the accusations behind his arrest are presented to him. Now we're in the the wee hours of the morning. We're into 2, 3 a.m. Friday morning. I assume at some point everybody had to sleep for a little while because early on Friday morning, once the sun came up, he's brought before the Roman governor of the region, the man called Pontius Pilate, to stand trial. It's in this scene of his trial that we find our third phrase. Reading from the New King James in John 18, verse 33, it says this. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again. The word praetorium is the the Roman word, the Latin word for the governor's mansion. So Pilate is in his mansion, the praetorium. And and it says, as he entered the praetorium again, he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? 
Pilate answered, am I I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Pilate's like, why are you in my house on Friday morning? I was trying to eat, and all of a sudden, you people showed up at my house. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In other words, Jesus, what a a display of his perfect control of the situation. Look, if I was a king, my people would have fought to keep me out of this situation. I'm here because I want to be here. Are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. And here's the third statement. For this cause, I was born. And for this cause, have I come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The third statement is this, for this cause I was born, for this reason I came into this world. Jesus knew his purpose, born to die. I wrote this in my notes, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Jesus came living to die so that he might redeem those dying to live. Jesus came living to die so that he might redeem those who were dying to live. Humanity, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, humanity was dead in our trespasses and sins without a hope, without an escape, without a way out. And Jesus says, this is the reason that I came to deliver humanity. He was saying to Pilate, I came that humanity might be transformed from darkness to light, from death to life. This was his ultimate purpose. This is why we say Easter is the time you can be transformed. Pilate has continued conversation with Jesus and eventually comes to the place where he says, I find nothing wrong with this man. Pilate says, there's, there's, just no, there's, there's no reason for him to be here. I find nothing wrong with him. Yet the, the Pharisees who at that time had, had amassed an angry crowd and had done a good job frothing the crowd up, now there's, now there's this mob, this rioting mob outside of Pontius Pilate's residence. And all of them are crying out for Jesus' head. And, and there was, there was a, a, a tradition at that time that every Passover, Pilate would release one person from prison. As a, as a way of saying thank you to the Jews for being good citizens. We, your overlords, would like to return one of your worst criminals back to you. Kudos. You know the story. 
Pilate tries to give them Barabbas, or excuse me, Pilate tries to give them Jesus, and the crowd shouts out, no, we want Barabbas, this murderer, this guy who just a couple weeks ago killed some people in Jerusalem. Let him free. Put the rabbi in jail. Sounds like today. Pontius Pilate has no choice but to release Jesus into the hands of his soldiers that they might beat him and scourge him. Instead of letting Barabbas go, or excuse me, instead of letting Jesus go, he releases Barabbas. And his, his henchmen now take Jesus out of the praetorium to, to, to a yard somewhere, some place where they would be able to beat him. I want to describe this for you for a moment, and I just tell you right up front, it's not pretty. They take him into this place where he could be beaten, where there was a whipping post. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you'll, you'll re recall seeing what looks like large cement pylons, stone pylons, where they took Jesus and bound him hands and feet so that his back was completely exposed and partially arched. They made him an easy target. And before they even began with any abuse of him, they stripped him naked. If you know anything about Hebrew tradition and Jewish tradition at that time, it was considered an absolute travesty to be exposed publicly, physically. Not, not, not only for, not, especially for a rabbi. To be naked in public was a sign of shame, great shame. And I want you to understand that the first thing that happened in Jesus' death, in the first thing that happened in his beating, was that he took our place and bore our shame. The Bible's very clear. He died on the cross for our sins. He took stripes on his back for our sickness. And he was naked for our shame. Some of you have carried shame from your past for far too long. And I'm here to tell you that today is the day that you can be free from shame. Everything that Jesus underwent was a big, great substitution. He took the beating in his body so that we could have healing in our bodies. He took sin in his soul and in his spirit so that we could be free from sin in our spirit and our soul. And he took shame so that you could be free from shame. They mocked him. Imagine this, the king of the universe, the word of God made flesh. Colossians says that everything that was made was made by him. Can you imagine that the very architect of the universe allows Roman soldiers to mock him? He let them mock him so that the devil has no grounds to mock you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took your mocking so that the devil has no grounds to mock you. 
The Bible uh, describes and history goes on to describe the fact that they beat him. Uh, most theologians believe that he, they beat him with rods before they broke out the whip. So that his body began to be bruised internally before any skin was broken. And the Roman soldiers, time after time, lash after lash with these wooden rods laid into him. After beating him with the rods, they began to scourge him with whips. Many of us know the type of whip that was used. It was referred to as the cat of nine tails, the nine-tailed cat. A leather whip with nine extensions, nine leather tentacles into which was, in, was, was sewn and woven in pieces of fragmented bone, stone, and chipped pottery. The sole purpose of this death tool was to wreak havoc on the body of whomever it was used. Digging into his soft skin, they pulled and yanked away flesh. And he began to bleed uncontrollably. 39 times they whipped him with the nine-tailed cat. And the Bible says, without question in Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. It's a travesty for us to tolerate sickness when Jesus bore 39 stripes. They spat on him, the king of the universe, man. They ripped his beard out of his face. The one that healed them, the one that delivered them, the one who just weeks before had raised up blind men to see and, and, and called back to life little girls who had, who had died and, 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 and healed the boy with epilepsy and raised Lazarus from the dead and walked on water and freed the demoniacs and cleansed the lepers, the one who had, who had ministered to their needs. Now they pull the beard from his face. They fashioned a crown out of acacia thorns. I don't know if you've ever seen an acacia tree, but the thorns are about this long. They fashion a crown of acacia thorns and they jam it into his head. They make him carry as far as he is physically able to. I have to imagine that at this point, his figure is so unrecognizable. Yet they make him carry the beam of his cross. He begins to go from this point, from the Roman praetorium. The crowds lead the procession, flanked by soldiers up the street, known as the Via Dolorosa, which in Latin means the way of sorrow. Surrounded undoubtedly by those who at one time he had healed and delivered. He heard voices who several days before had shouted, Hosanna, now in their angry doubt, shouting for his death. I have to imagine that he recognized faces in the crowd. At this point, he stumbles on the road, and he's unable now, physically too weak, too exhausted, too disfigured to carry his cross. They appoint a man named Simon the Cyrian to carry his cross the remainder of the way. 
Step by step, they lead him on to the top of a hill just outside the city fortifications where the gruesome scene of Roman crucifixion was to take place. This crucifixion was a method of capital punishment reserved only for the most despised and vile criminals. Hence, it was meant not merely to kill, but to ensure that death was preceded by ample amounts of torture. The victim would have wrists and feet impaled by nails similar in length to that of a railroad spike. They were driven deep into the wooden beams of a cross. Once securely anchored into the ground, the cross stood upright, causing the full weight of the victim to be drawn downward, thereby restricting his ability to breathe. Not only had Jesus gone through the agony of scourging, but now he was hanging on the cross and he couldn't breathe. Each breath had to be taken by pushing himself upward, putting weight on the nails that had pierced his feet, lengthening his body and allowing just enough room for a gasp of air before he slunk back down again. This scene persisted for six hours. All the while, soldiers mocked and gambled for his clothing so that every single one of the ancient prophecies about him could be fulfilled. The disciples, his mother, and many of his followers looked at him and wept while others still scoffed at his elevated figure. The Pharisees, looking on from a distance, mocked, jeering at him to save himself. Come down off the cross if you say you're the Christ. But Jesus didn't come down off the cross. He needed to stay there. Why? Because of you. Amidst all of this betrayal, he speaks, and at the moment that he speaks, we find our fourth statement. Are you all still with me? Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's hanging on the cross. They've brought him to the brink of death. They're in the act of killing him, and he cries out for their forgiveness. Only divine love could forgive someone while they're still busy committing the act. Some of y'all are holding on to bitterness from 10 years, 15, 20 years ago. Some of us are struggling with, with moments where we felt betrayed. I'm here to tell you nobody was more betrayed than Jesus And if Jesus, in the height of his betrayal, in the moment when he was betrayed, could usher forgiveness into them, so can you. God's heart has always been and always will be 
forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I always want to be on the side of mercy. Amen. This continued for six hours until finally the moment came. Our Savior, the Lamb of God, utters our fifth statement. Some of you already know what this is. A statement which is perhaps the greatest and most important statement ever uttered. The words, it is finished. And he breathed out his last. The Bible says in the book of Luke, or in the book of John that he gave up the ghost. I love it. Even in this moment, he's still in control. Even in this moment, he didn't die. He gave up himself. He gave up the ghost. He, he, he let himself perish. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it as a ransom, the Bible says, for many. The it is finished is the words that proceeded from his mouth. The job was done. The task was completed. The price was paid. Freedom was purchased. The contract was signed in his blood. And the journey that had begun in the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem had come to its intended conclusion. It is finished. This forever stands as history's greatest moment. The moment that all of time and space and history revolves around. In that moment, with that statement, it is finished, backdropped by sounds of rolling thunder through Jerusalem as he gave up his life. The Bible says the earth itself began to quake. The, the veil in the, in the holy temple was ripped from top to bottom and people began to come out of their tombs the moment that he died. With those words, it is finished. All of time and history turned like the page of a book, signaling the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. God's promise that he'd made to Father Abraham had finally been fulfilled. The disciples went away discouraged. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had pondered for 33 and a half years in her heart the reality, my son is the Messiah. I have to imagine that as she left the scene of the cross, that her mind had to go back and remember the words that the angel Gabriel had spoken to her. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name shall be called Jesus, for, for he will be the one to redeem. They all wandered away. The kingdom of darkness gloated at what seemed like victory. Satan breathed a big sigh of relief. For a moment, all hope seemed lost. Redemption had slipped 
through mankind's fingers yet again. And creation, all of creation, held its breath until the third day. Not much is known about Saturday. In fact, the Bible only mentions that Jesus and the disciples, or excuse me, that the disciples rested because of the Sabbath. That's the only thing the Bible says about Saturday. It was a pretty uneventful day. They stayed at home and they locked themselves up and they rested in order to preserve the Sabbath. I have to imagine that in their minds, they're mourning the fact that the one who proclaimed himself to be the Christ has now died and they forgot that he said he was coming back praise God that the story doesn't end on Saturday after all the dust settled Sunday came right on schedule the sun burned over the horizon and rose higher into the sky casting long and early shadows behind the stone buildings of Jerusalem. Among the rows of compact barnyards, donkeys and oxen lazily rose to their feet, munching their breakfast feed in the cool of the morning. In his home near the city center, Caiaphas the high priest rolled over, snoring, easing in and out of an unrestful sleep. Somewhere outside the city walls, a rooster announced coming of daylight. Unlike the previous days in Jerusalem, all is now quiet in the city. Sunday morning has arrived. But this is not simply another Sunday. This is the first day. The start of a new and better covenant. This is the beginning of days. This is the day when all of the promises of God begin to come true. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. As he shifts his weight from one side of his body to the other, the Roman soldier who stirs outside of Jesus' tomb He's jolted awake as his shield slides downward onto the loose gravel beneath his feet. Was that a dream or did the earth tremble? He ponders to himself, though he does not have time to answer. To his left, he sees four of his comrades running in terror toward an olive grove, away from the tombs, their screams subsiding as they move farther and farther away. Spinning right, He sees the only other remaining soldier unconscious, face down outside of the tomb they were guarding, which is now somehow completely open. Quickly, he moves to the aid of his fallen friend, attempting to revive him when his attention is diverted by the sound of a footstep in the gravel. Slowly, he raises his eyes in the direction of the door of the tomb to find that his gaze has been met by none other than Jesus of Nazareth. He's frozen, unable to look away. He examines the face looking back at him. The signs of death 
having been completely erased. He sees this man, this teacher, the one they call Messiah, perfectly and completely alive. Still unable to move and unsure of how much time has passed, he looks down again at the fallen soldier who's now beginning to wake up. Scrambling to his feet, this second soldier stumbles forward and catches his balance. Then they both stare into the tomb, now empty, wondering what to do next. I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Luke 24. Mary and the other women visit the tomb a short time later. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, here we find our final statement, which is not a statement. It's actually a question from the two angels. He says unto them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. I have to imagine... That God the Father in this moment has to chuckle. As the angels ask a question of the women, which is almost too simple. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, was there ever any doubt about the outcome? Why do you look for the one who's alive in the place where only dead people are? Their question scorches with an almost sarcastic yet holy irreverence towards the defeated enemy of death itself. As though death was nothing more than a schoolyard bully who had just been put in his place. I want you to see the mockery that Jesus made of death think about it the chief enemy death we're talking about death the chief enemy of the human race the most serious of all consequences the fear of all who live and breathe death the ultimate tool with which Satan had held humanity captive for centuries has now been completely unraveled and completely undone and it only took Jesus three days to do it. Thousands of years of Satan's handiwork from the Garden of Eden to the cross eradicated in three short days. 
It's no wonder that the great apostle Paul, when he's writing later to the Corinthians, stands upon this new foundation of new creation reality in Christ Jesus. And he utters the words, mocking the very nature of death, when he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? The angel said, he's no longer here. He's alive, just as he said. (laughs) He's alive, just as he said. And from that moment forward, everything is just as he said. My friend, the plan of the Son of God was never to be dead in a tomb but to be alive in your heart and alive in your life. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've never made a decision to make him your savior, today is the day to be transformed. I want to close with one scripture and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and we're gonna, they're going to lead us in a song as we close. I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 and I want you to think about everything that you just heard and think about everything that transpired in this human drama called the resurrection and listen to the words of the great apostle Paul. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because he lives, we live. Because he died, we died with him. But now because he lives, we live. With him. All of the handiwork of death unraveled in three little days. Jesus rose triumphant. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I want the worship team to come back. They're going to lead us in a song, and then I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Father, we worship you. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on a cross, but you didn't stay dead. You rose triumphant from the grave so that we might find life in you. This morning, we worship you. We pay homage and reverence to that which you did on Calvary's cross. Jesus, saved our life. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.